Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. We have a fun episode for you guys today. Andrew Ritter coming on. A long awesome. time friend of mine, an incredibly talented artist of Stanceworks fame and Ritter Goods fame. He, uh, you just, you look at what he does and it's hard to understand in my mind. I see artists, like I see Jeff that works with us. I see Andrew. I see other artists. I just look at what they do and they go, how do you do that? Yeah. Like, how do you create that from nothing? Nothing. Basically, you're just, you know, start like, especially when it's 3D stuff. I went to, I wanted to do 3D animation for college. Okay. So I went to school at the Academy of Art in San Francisco. Right. I went there for about a year and a half for two years and went, wow, this is horrible. <laughs> but the first thing that I did when I got out there is I hopped on my bike. Uh-huh. And it was a Wednesday morning, late morning, whatever, maybe Thursday, who knows, making this up. But I, I hopped on my bike, which, by the way, I was in the best shape of my life when I lived out in San Francisco biking. Because of the damn hills. The hills. You should see my legs, dude. And it's like, I was like wider than I was tall. Okay, anyways, anyways Wednesday morning. So I, I biked out to the Pixar Studios. Oh, cool. Because I was like, I really, like, I wanted it so bad. I'd seen Bugs Life. And I, yeah. and I was familiar with uh, Maya was the software that we used yep. back then. And yep. Lightscape was what you would render in. So you would not okay. necessarily render in the software that you modeled in. Okay. So I was familiar with, you know, so I have a I have a decent understanding of what Andrew is doing with Ritter Goods. Like I understand the basic mechanics of everything that he's doing. And I can tell you guys, it is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, it, it not besides just the technical aptitude of creating it, right? Because you can the learn originality. That. Yeah, you can learn that anybody the, can learn. Anyone software. can learn technique, or you know, be good at that. Not well, no, not everyone is good at it. But there are many people that are very good at a craft. You can you can watch YouTube videos and learn software. Is what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, but, but it's the originality that I think is so impressive. Yeah, it's, it's so it's, cool. it's great. So, but before we get to that, what have you got for us? Yeah, let's take a moment to talk about Petrol Box. Petrol Box is a monthly subscription service made specifically for the automotive enthusiasts. Each month, they pack up little boxes that are full of amazing gear. I'm going off script here. That's okay. Well, you're not wrong. It is little boxes full of amazing gear. I got a t-shirt that says... T-shirt. Like, it's got a socket on, a little 10-millimeter socket. And then the back of it was the milk carton, like yeah. a missing kid. Yeah, I it's know. great. I they, loved that one. They have awesome stuff. So there's Overcrest Basic, and then they have over, uh, over uh, Petrobox basic, basic, and then they have the Premium. Yep. The Premium is one that comes with a shirt, I believe. Right? It comes with more gear, yeah. More, so more sometimes, stuff. you know, usually you'll get a tool. We got a little light that I used yep. just this last week in the garage. We got some other stuff. Cleaning supplies, always cleaning supplies. Yep. You try different stuff out. It's just really cool getting a surprise each and every month. Yep. That, By the way, the value of the goods you get is more than the subscription that you're paying. Right. So it is a good deal in addition to being just really cool. Great gift. Great gift. Head over to uh, mypetrolbox.com and use the code OVERCRAST at checkout to get $6 off your first month's order. All right, guys. Andrew Ritter. Mr. Andrew Ritter, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. We really appreciate you uh, being here with us. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I, I've been a long-time listener. Excited to be on. Long-time listener, first-time caller? exactly <laughs> it's been it's been interesting you know you know people for years and years and years and then you completely forget like what your first interaction was or where you first met or anything do you remember where you and i first started talking or anything uh i haven't the slightest clue where we first started talking but i remember some of my early recollections of bumping into you on the uh, vw vortex forums oh uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably is not good <laughs> Chris no, is, uh, for those aren't aware, is on perma ban from the vortex. Yeah, I've been banned twenty seven times. Yeah, that must have been pre ban years. Yeah, pre ban years. So one thing that's you know I, I've you know obviously we're we're friends, and I'm trying to take myself out of the the friends role for the, for the interview a little bit. Is I noticed on your Instagram that you are going to be a new father, and Jake is a new father. He's very 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 fresh new father, and I'm in. I'm like, what am I? I'm not old father because I've, and my kids are seven no, and eight. No, but you're seasoned at this but point. But I'm, I'm more of a seasoned father. And, yeah. you know, I've heard you, Andrew, talk about your dad. And so I want to hear about your father. Tell me about yours. Yeah, so my dad was uh, John Ritter, uh, born and raised in Ohio. Uh, I guess as is a theme from your recent uh, podcast, 
his dad was a pig farmer in Minnesota uh, who moved out to Cleveland area. And that's where my dad grew up almost his entire life. And we didn't stray very far. Uh, and when I was born, he was an avid BMW guy. I was born into a driveway that had a 2002 BMW 3.0 CS and an E28 5 Series. It's a really great man. Dang. So that's what it, what was he doing? What was uh, what was your dad like as a person? What was his job? What was his personality like? Uh, he was a bit of a hippie and loved the Grateful Dead and music in general. Uh, and then his work, he never really identified work with work, which is something I always valued. Um, he kind of just ran numbers and, you know, inventory forecasting and, and sales and stuff. When you, when you say that he never really valued work or identified work as work, what do you mean by that? He just didn't. It wasn't his personality. He went to work to get a paycheck, um, but he was really looking forward to time at home, partaking in in family time and hobbies and stuff and just sort of went to work just to get that paycheck, pay the bills and, and I guess give us the life that we got to live, which is fantastic. So I'm imagining with those cars in the driveway, that's kind of where you, it was instilled in with you was the cars and the, and the passion for that. But how did it, how did it come across? Was there an instance or a moment or anything you remember? You know, it's funny. It never really caught on um, a ton. Until I was about 14, 15, you know, your license starts becoming more of a, a realistic opportunity. And he took me out to the first Fast and Furious movie. <laughs> and I think at 14, 15, that was enough to cement the deal. And I really started kind of looking in car magazines, looking in RC car magazines, getting the itch and dreaming up possibilities. Well, you ended up a far cry from being somebody that I would have seen pictured in Fast and the Furious movies. What kind of set you on the road to being like a mini guy? So my dad did uh, try real hard uh, to instill it in me. I think at the age of four months old, I've got a photo of him holding me at my first uh, vintage race. And he and I used to spend weekends going down to the mid-Ohio racetrack down in central Ohio. And that's kind of where it all fell in place for me i think i was five six years old maybe with him it was your typical vintage race where it's got classes of all sorts and he let me walk through vendor alley and handed me a five dollar bill and said hey you can go pick whatever you want and so i browsed all the different posters and magazines and booklets and stuff and walked away with like a little matchbox uh austin mini cooper and told him i'm gonna own one of these one day and i think he kind of scoffed and just kind of giggled at the idea, but it was something I had always determined to do and fortunately managed to pull it off. When, and how old were you when you bought the Matchbox? I was like five or six, I think. Wow. First of all, it's amazing <laughs> you remember that. And second of all, amazing that your dream was so kind of steadfast that it came true. A lot of people, yeah, they, they have moments in their life that are important, but they always kind of stray or meander away. Ooh, right. and, and the wake of their oh, life yeah. makes the bobber go in a different direction. So did you? what did your dad think of when you finally got it? Oh, he was so excited. He actually helped me get it. Uh, I found it in Kentucky originally. And since he was still in Ohio, I kind of begged him, hey, can you get this registered in Ohio for me? I'm going to have it shipped over, and before you know it, he was sending me cell phone photos of him sitting in the driver's seat, <laughs> so pleased with the thing. Uh, and when when it was time for me to come check out the car and go grab it, I flew home, and it lined up perfectly with one of the uh, mini challenge races. They run once a year. They run a race of nothing but classic minis at different racetracks around the country uh, and that year it lined up perfectly it was down at mid-ohio kind of our home track so i flew back uh, hung out with him at that race and then we sat and took my mini around drove it around before i shipped it out to california and why did you take it apart if it was a running and driving car i mean because i've only i my knowledge of your car is these phenomenal photos that you just take of it like tucked into your garage with you know the beautiful detail shots with the carburetor sitting there and it always looks like this amazing thing but if it ran, why did it need to come apart? You know what? I was I was super naive. It was my first classic car. Uh, I think taking it apart definitely comes with a, a little bit of regret, but I didn't know any better. I think I was driving it around. I had some parts to toss on it, so I put it up on jacks, just some suspension bits, uh, and I went to bolt them on and found that some of the mounting points for the subframe were 
very rusty in typical British standards. Um, and at the time, I really thought like, oh, it'll be no problem fixing this. You know, I'd watched Mike Burroughs, uh, my shop partner at the time, do all sorts of crazy builds. And I thought I could kind of do the same thing. I tore it down, found more and more rust and learned what the slippery slope of classic car projects is. It's amazing what they'll actually do with a little bit of rust or a lot of rust. You know, if something oh, okay. has a lot of rust, it'll still hold together as long as all the bolts are, <laughs> are bolts are still there. Yeah, I'm sure that car would still be on the road had I not taken it off to restore it. But we're getting closer and closer. It's got all of its suspension back in. It's hopefully pretty rust-free at this point and getting close. I've got an engine for it and everything. Overcrest Rally 2023. There you go. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> So you obviously you you're kind of a car guy and stuff like that, but you're you know when I think of Andrew, I think of artist, designer, you know, guy that does you know we've got artwork hanging up here in the studio of yours. How did you you know become an artist? When did that click in your mind that that's what you were going to do? And I hesitate you know, to say I hesitate to say designer. Like obviously you're a designer, you do design work, you design the original Overcrest logo, and I know that you're a designer, but I just I. I feel like I see you as like an artist too. So I'm trying to figure out how to diverge the two. Yeah, it's a tough one, I guess. Um, and for me, it's a really blurry line. I do think of myself a bit more on the artistic side of things. Um, I don't know when that decision was ever made. I mean, I drew as, as early as, you know, <laughs> crayons and markers as a little kid. Uh, and I was just always that kid in class that kind of doodled and, did well in art class and enjoyed stuff like that. And even when I went to college, I was actually pretty determined not to do art. I told the counselor, hey, I'm not interested, but they had seen my portfolio and one of the art teachers there really pushed for it. So, so that's like the six foot six guy that's sitting in the math room and they're like, dude, you got to try out for the basketball team. <laughs> yeah, basically. He was so disappointed that I wasn't even considering it. What, uh, were, you at school, what were you in school for? Uh, so I ended up going to school for philosophy and studio art. And then my focus during studio art was uh, mostly sculpture, although I did a lot of oil painting as well. What about philosophy was important to you? Uh, I mean, it's something. So I ended up going to the same college both my parents did. Um, it was like a little uh, kind of liberal arts school. And he was always into the philosophy political science realm and so he and i used to sit and talk at the dinner table for hours and it i took a class my freshman year not really knowing what to expect and it was reminiscent of the same thing going back and forth really thinking about life and beauty and and stuff and it kind of rang true with a lot of the questions i had about the world and growing up and such what kind of questions do you have right now you know as you look at the world and you look at what you're doing and everything else what kind of philosophizing are you doing right now is that a word philosophizing no philosophicalizing that's also not a word <laughs> you're getting further <laughs> <laughs> what, what's that, what are you thinking about right now what what you know when you're eating dinner what's going on you know an ongoing this is perhaps not a dinner thought but an ongoing fascination for me uh and it comes up in that book that i think you should read zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance that is literally on my nightstand right now I have, it, I have it in my office. I have a copy that this guy, Andrew Ritter, sent me because he wants me to read it. So <laughs> oh, I, I, well, I you have, haven't gotten to it. I haven't read it yet. I know I'm a jerk. Uh, it is like written for you, basically. But mm -hmm. the one of the questions the character deals with, and this isn't a spoiler or anything, is just sort of defining what quality is and how we as people can tell the difference. I mean, at the end of the day, you know whether or not you're reading a good book, a bad book, watching a good movie or a bad movie. Um, and I think trying to boil that down and figure out what that magic sauce is, is something that has just always fascinated me. What is it? What is the magic sauce? <laughs> well, let's, let's use art, for example, like art and yeah. design. What make, or let's just use design. What makes good design? It's so hard to put a definition there, but you know that there is good design because, uh, let's use cars for an example, since we're all so familiar there are just certain cars that speak to everybody, right? Um, I think in the last episode, you talked about, like, why are Vanigans so desired if they don't work well and they're always breaking down? Right. It's something about that design, you know, whether or not it's the idea that it might have a face or a personality to it, 
all of us kind of see these vehicles and immediately feel some form of, you know, desire, thought that they're maybe cooler than another one or whatever. And I think all of that is due to design. So if you're able to connect with design and it's able to be something that's emotional for you and you can kind of have this enigmatic thought about what's good and what's bad, then it must have, you know, I look at design of, especially of buildings and urban design and, you know, whether that's seating or doors or buildings, windows, how things are laid out, they can have like a huge impact on emotional well-being of an individual or of a society. Why do you think that design affects people in in such a way? That is a good question. I certainly agree with you. Um, I, I guess just that it elicits emotions. And so if you're surrounded by things that are causing you stress and making you feel uncomfortable and it's kind of triggering that fight or flight, uh, you're not going to be having a good time versus if you're surrounded by peaceful things and things that make you feel good, it's going to be fantastic. I think that's why, you know, interior design is such a thing and people put so much thought into their cars, the seats and stuff like that. If you can put yourself in a place where you're feeling comfortable, uh, I think that's the ideal, right? Yeah, I think you can have places that feel comfortable because you've been in them so much. But there's also has to be there has to be kind of like general rules, I think, of of design that when you think of the way it's going to impact a person's psychology. Like if there's, you know, if you have I was looking at a house the other day that was across from my buddy's shop. And the yep. window in the top floor was off center. Like, it was off to the left a little bit. Like, and I was just like, I kept looking at it and I'm like, why, why is it like that? It's like making me uncomfortable. Like, I mean, I'm not sure. Sh- I'm sure that brings up a good point because I think a lot of design is the function behind the design. So you, a lot of times when thinking about different functions and different utilities of a design, there are compromises that need to be made. The window was probably offset because they had to have a wall right there that had to have plumbing in it or something else. Nah, I think it was just bad design. Do I don't. You? Yeah, it was truly this window. But I, that okay, was, but the, taking your analogy further out, like, is is design inherently bad if you have to make compromises for function? Uh, I think that you're probably always going to do that. Whether you, now you're you'll start getting into like underwriting and how that affects design and how. You know, you, you, of course, design always has compromises. That's why really good design is very expensive because it's designed without compromise. Like you my know, microphone stand here, which is cheap. That's because you never stop touching it. Just and therefore, it's falling apart in front of me. <laughs> so I think if you have, you know, design without compromises, that's why it's always very expensive because it takes a lot of forethought, takes a lot of me- planning, whether it's mechanical planning or materials or anything like that, maybe. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's why it is a compromise, right? You're giving up maybe some form for function in, in a lot of times. So, you know, we talk about Andrew Ritter, and one thing we can't talk, not talk about is Stanceworks. You know, I, can you tell me a little bit how you met Mike and Stanceworks came to be? Yeah, so it's a funny one. So we'll go all the way back uh, before I even met Mike. Um, I had just graduated college, and... I graduated right into the recession. I graduated uh, summer of 2007, walked into 2008 uh, and couldn't find a job anywhere, basically. So having spent a ton of time on forums and going to different car shows and stuff, I decided to start putting together a T-shirt company uh, that was largely mini based at the time. But I had spent some time again on VW Vortex and a little bit of time hearing about this kind of emerging, I guess you'd call it car club, uh, called Stanceworks. And somewhere along the way, Mike and I met at H2O International. (laughs) And he had heard that I was working on t-shirts and he had this new kind of car club that he was working on and he was having a hard time making t-shirts and stickers happen and getting them shipped out to everybody. And so originally I just came on board to kind of help him with the logistics of shipping t-shirts and stickers and stuff. But we what was Stanceworks quickly... at the time? What was it like? What was the, if I was experiencing what Stancework was, what was it at that time? Honestly, it's kind of hard to give it a name, but it was basically a handful of guys. I mean, not many at all. Um, who were just sort of tired of, of 
getting flack for lowering their car so much uh, on, on the various, you know, BMW forums, Volkswagen forums and stuff. They're having a really hard time, just all the negativity and stuff. And so they kind of separated off. There wasn't even a website yet at the time, but they started kind of just calling it stands for and before long they'd started their own forum so they had somewhere to kind of reconvene and it was a tight-knit group of friends that just sort of grew and grew so i'm imagining the time and i was i was really anti stance works at the time because it was you know you guys were probably creating the forum so you could get away from people like me but i was like static <laughs> static all day long airbags are you know i had a stickers that i made that said bags are for bitches I was I was a little caustic back then, and <laughs> I I had a kind of a bad view of Stanceworks. And then every car that I would see that I would have a Stanceworks banner on the windshield was a car that you guys had featured or something like that, or was in one of the club, or I'm not sure. But I had a I had this weird negative outlook on Stanceworks back then. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's um, probably just part of it. Uh, and there's no denying the idea of stance, what it ended up becoming, everything is very divisive. Um, and I have my opinions in both directions. You know, I love a lot of what it was and a lot of what it became maybe is a little questionable. Uh, but at the end of the day, Stanceworks was really originally about giving everyone a place to do what they wanted, uh, to be creative and to voice their opinions. So the Stanceworks logo that I saw in the windshield, did you do that? I did. Yeah. So that was part of eventually when I came on board, uh, I kind of gave it all a little rebrand, ended up designing the website when it became a blog uh, and moved out to California. Actually, before Mike did, uh, when we decided to kind of take it, quote unquote, seriously and move out to California to be closer to the auto industry and kind of all the cars that we would inevitably be shooting. What, what, what about the, what was going on made you think that you should take it seriously? Like, was, were things, like, really taken off? Was traffic great? Why did you decide to, you know, try and make money off of this, which is monumentally difficult? I wish I was that responsible to have made that decision <laughs> to on anything. Um, I sort of was just excited that it might justify a move across the country at a time where I wasn't, you know, I just graduated college and I was looking to make it look like it was worth it and have a job. And so I thought, hey, I could do this. I could move out to California, be by the beach, be by the waves. Uh, let's do it. Now, fortunately, when we moved out and started, quote unquote, taking it seriously, we checked the traffic and were amazed. And I think at that point decided, OK, good, we made a good decision. But we really just kind of <laughs> tossed caution to the wind. I mean, when I moved out here uh, and, and when Mike moved out, we were living in our garage or warehouse, uh, to avoid having to pay rent, just, just trying to make it kind of work at first. So what you say that you said that it was kind of, it went one of both ways. Some things were good. Some things were bad. What were the, what was the bad evolution of what, you know, kind of stance works in inspire? Cause we know what the good stuff is. We can see it. It's there today, but what is the bad side of things? Um, the bad side, and I don't know that you can lay full blame on the stance community, especially not on Stanceworks. I think part of the blame is just the timing and social media kind of Instagram's emergence happened to coincide almost perfectly with the growth of the kind of stance style. And I think quickly you saw people who were no longer in it, uh, for the community no longer in it for the art of all of it we're just there to you know get into the magazines or impress people and it it's just that kind of desire just having i guess the wrong intentions led to i think a lot of a lot of problems for people the way they at least viewed the scene so you guys you start you move out to california you start up the website you're living in the shop at what point did it become something that you could, you know, move out of the shop and get an apartment and, and how did the business side of that work back then? Cause this is kind of the transition between this is all happening when forums are dying and social media is starting to take off. Right. Oh, absolutely. It was really, I mean, back then it wasn't as common to, I mean, now everyone can have a t-shirt printed and stuff. Uh, but back then we were like right on the cusp of even just like DIY e-commerce was still pretty new. Um, and so 
we did what we could. We did T-shirts. You know, I did those driving gloves that I think you still got a pair of, uh, did stickers and stuff. And a lot of that helped. And then we were lucky to bring on a lot of great sponsors over the years that kind of allowed us to make it a thing, make a living, you know, photographing cars and running around to races. And So now if you want to, like, get a sponsor for something, you know, it, it's it's hard because oh yeah, it's, it's hard because everyone can look and see, okay, if I spend $10,000 on X on Facebook or Instagram, whatever, I can see the metrics of this many people clicked on this, this many people saw this, this many people this. Now, I think they're wrong. <laughs> I do. I think sure. I, I think that that those numbers that they're seeing yeah. are erroneous. I don't think that that many people because of ad blindness. It's, or, well, it's not erroneous, but yes, it's can't. It's most of these the marketing departments. Of right. Ascribe direct metrics of like clicks and yes. image impressions to ROI. ROI when there is a greater value in brand awareness and just seeing it out there and like you said, just overall name recognition. So I'm th- I'm thinking in terms of the sponsors that you were getting initially were just really believed in what you were doing. And that doesn't seem to happen anymore. Yeah, I mean, there's no denying. We were kind of right at the perfect golden era for, I guess at the time, blogs. Because like you said, the forums were dying. Uh, magazines were kind of struggling. Mm-hmm. And so we were lucky. I mean, we were, it was us. And then, you know, Stance Nation popped up off of the Stanceworks forums. Speed Hunters was a, a big thing. But there still weren't that many of us. Um, and like you said, Facebook marketing and Instagram ads hadn't become a thing quite yet. So we were lucky. I mean, I think a lot of companies really um, enjoyed or appreciated the quality of the content that we were putting out. I think whether or not people liked what Stanceworks was doing, I think it was really hard to deny uh, the quality of the photography, the quality of the products that we were putting out. It was something Mike and I took uh, a lot of pride in and put (laughs) an extreme amount of effort into. And stuff like that, I think, led to a bunch of partners that wanted to see us continue and wanted to be supportive of what we were doing. So one thing that you and I always talk about is the value of hard work and the value of art and the value of creativity. And you're a little pessimistic on what the future, what you think the future will bring for, you know, creatives and people that want to do what you've inevitably done. Can you explain how you feel about that stuff? I think that, I mean, you see people say the silly thing of just like art has become content and that's the worst thing to ever happen to art or whatever. Um, And I think in some ways that's, you know, hyperbole, but in other ways, I do think there's a bit of value to that. I think nowadays art lasts, you know, you can take an incredible photo and what used to live in, you know, on a poster in a wall or a magazine or whatever now is just one of a million photos someone scrolls by and sees for a millisecond and then scrolls right past it. And the expectation is that you make, you know, two to three videos a week and you've got to have 15 photos posted or else the algorithm won't like you as much. And I think inevitably that's then pushing a time frame that's not natural for artwork and not natural for the creative tendencies or the creative process. And I think pushing that has just led people to either cut corners or find ways to make art more efficient and i don't know that art is something meant to be efficient Uh, but it's being done just to kind of cut costs and kind of get like you guys said the roi uh, just to get exposure keep it keep your algorithm happy and all that stuff haven't hasn't it allowed more people to be exposed to art and more people to create art though no i mean absolutely that's the double-edged sword and that's you know why we're all involved if that wasn't kind of the carrot dangling in front of us, I don't think any of us would really be working so hard to generate content in a world that maybe doesn't give you any returns uh, for your hard work. Otherwise, I do think we're insanely lucky. The fact that, I mean, even the fact that we're all doing what we're doing right now is in a large part due to what we've been able to put out there and publish. And I think if we zoom back to our parents' generation, you could have been an incredible photographer, but you're not going to get into a gallery unless you're the top 1%. So. Right. 
And that's, I mean, that's not much different now. I mean, you still have to no, be good. No, but there's more noise out there, right? Sure, there's more So my more question static. is, can the average person scrolling through Instagram, can they differentiate the quality content, the actual art, versus just what everyone is trying to churn out for exposure? No. Yeah, that's a tough one. I, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think you're saying the average person... Uh, I mean, you look at what's popular in today's culture from TV <laughs> shows or music. It's never the best music, right? It's never Beethoven-esque layers of music artistry. It's, you know, whatever's poppy and whatever kind of hits people's just general tastes. But I don't think that those are in line with quality. Why do you think the uh, the ability for the the algorithm to grab a hold of stuff that's awful versus stuff that's is it because there's so much less good to begin with i mean if you look at just the breadth of content that's created there's only you know a small percentage of it that you or i or anybody that's educated in art or design or whatever would think is good is it not delivered to people because there isn't enough of it or because people genuinely don't know or i just i'm trying to figure out why in my head i am delivered absolute shit right just it's just shoveled at me versus i mean every once in a while i'll see something beautiful but generally i have to seek it out myself if i'm going to find it oh absolutely and not only are you shoveled garbage you're shoveled it through a third-party repost page because they are (laughs) they're better set up to be on that explore page or in the algorithm because they are churning out even more of the garbage by just stealing it from whoever's making the garbage uh how do you combat that? How do you com- like the re- whole the whole repost thing? How do you combat that as a creator when you can't even compete with the guy that's basically conglomerating a bunch of stuff, you know, and you have because you have five thousand followers and they've got three hundred thousand followers, and your per- perceived value is because you have five thousand followers is not as good as the guy that actually isn't creating anything mm-hmm. other than a bunch of uh, a, a, a basically a quilt of other people's work. Sure. I mean, this is where I sound like the old man in his yard yelling. Uh, it used to be, I mean, not even, let's say, eight years ago. It used to be that if you called someone out for stealing a photo, everyone would be upset about it. He would feel ashamed and with any luck would stop doing it. But now it's almost become a thing. Like it's it's almost seen as a job reposting this stuff. I mean, people are making it an actual career. Uh, it's very, very easy to be quote unquote cool now because every formula for how to be cool, there's a page that will show (laughs) you exactly what you need to do to be cool. Right. I mean, if you, if like, just in terms of the style of, you know, if you were walking down the street in the, in the sixties or the seventies or eighties, you could look at a guy and go, wow, that dude is, that dude is cool. That dude looks cool. He's getting into the cool car. I mean, that dude is cool. And there was probably a guy in your school that was cool. And you couldn't be that guy because you didn't know how. But now you can just go on, you can look up whatever hashtag you want, and you can go and find a page that's dedicated to how to be that guy. And it's got all the little pictures with what watch he wears, the cars, the look, the style, the art, everything. It's all there. So you can be, I mean, you might not be cool on the inside, but you can certainly (laughs) pretend to be cool. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you could decide right now to be a fly fisherman. In six months, you could look like you're living the full lifestyle. Um, it's a debate my wife and I have all the time on whether or not that's cool or good. Um, cause like, if you think about when we went to high school, if you wanted to boil down style per se, you had like the kids that dressed preppy in Abercrombie, you had the goth kids, mm-hmm. and then you had maybe the skater kids with Jinkos and stuff. Yep. But there was only a few, like there was only a few companies that sold clothing back then that every kid bought. It was very, and it was the same across the country. And I think now kids are being exposed to so many different styles, lifestyles, um, fashion and all of that, that it's almost like they've got so much more to choose from. And so I think in formative years, it's actually kind of cool that they have access all of those different things or all of the different kinds of cars if we want to circle back around like 
it wasn't just, oh, all my friends have European cars, so I have a European car. It's just whatever you want to find on social media and plug into. But naturally, that then does come with, is it authentic? You know, and I think authenticity is rarer and more valuable these days. How do you so even, how do you even represent authenticity anymore? Who believes anybody? Like what what is it about any particular account or whatever that makes it seem authentic? It's hard to even know unless you've been following somebody for forever. And even then, deep in my heart, I want to believe, I guess, optimistically, that people can sense it. I think I'm a strong believer in, you know, this life is really short and you need to spend it being authentic to yourself. And that means following your heart as best you can in whatever it is you do. You know, for me, it's art, but for you, it might be writing or for someone else, it might be a totally different thing. And I think as long as you're following your heart through those things, I have to really believe that at least a small segment of people will be able to tell against all of the other noise that's going on all of the other formulaic stuff and and hope that they can sense it and i think that a lot of people are just you 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 when you say that you can follow your heart and stuff like that that sounds awesome and i i agree with you that people should do that if they have a reason but there's a lot of people that don't they don't really have like a, a special skill or a special talent i would say the majority of people just don't they just go about their regular life and they you know they do their job and then they come home and they then they raise their kids and it almost seems like there's that is seen as almost not good anymore that, that you can just be a regular guy with a family and just exist. Like everybody needs to have like some sort of thing or they need to have like some sort of kitsch or you need to follow your dream and stuff like that. But re- realistically, it's just, if you're just being yourself and want to just raise your family and, and live on two acres and mow your lawn once a week, there should be nothing wrong with that. But it feels like society is really, pushing that out as something that is an outlier and, and, and it's almost a bad thing when it isn't. Yeah. I mean, I think there's some truth to it. Uh, when I, when I say follow my, follow your heart, it's a much simpler concept. It's not, Oh, follow your heart and turn it into a job. It needs to be this like <laughs> monetizable hobby. Uh, going back to my dad, I mean, my dad had some really basic, not basic hobbies, but like hobbies that he didn't care if he was the best in, right? He loved golfing, loved fishing, typical bad things. Um, but his heart was in the family. His, like, it was, as he saw it, his biggest accomplishment and favorite accomplishment. And that is fantastic. I think if you can find contentness in that and follow your heart to things like that. You know, like you said, on like a two acre property, you've got your family, you're treating them well. Everyone in the family is living the best life that they can. That to me is true success rather than, you know, any kind of crazy monetary thing or anything beyond that. I think if you're being true to who you are, even if it that's not quote unquote impressive on paper, that is success in life to me. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And I think that one of the downfalls of society now is you're, you're talking about your dad had hobbies that he didn't care that anyone else was better than him at. And I think right. this, the society that we're in now wants you to compare yourself to other people. It's if you look on social, you're constantly looking at the best that everybody puts forth. Yeah. I mean, I think whether or not it's even accurate, we think we all have right. a quantifiable report on how good we are at things. Now, I don't think those numbers represent anything in terms of the quality of whatever it is you're doing, you know, but it's so easy, even for the best of us to fall for it because you're getting a report card, basically, and we've all been raised on report cards and needing to do well. And so it's really, really easy to get stuck in that trap, Uh, not to mention getting stuck in the trap of success is only making X amount of money and making sure that that number is super high so you can buy more stuff. Um, I think between those two things, we kind of lose focus on what it means to be successful and happy. For sure. And I think that the one currency that's become ubiquitous is your follower count. And And that has become something that, you know, I struggle with and I and I've talked to you and I mean it's bothered you from time to time too is that the the value of you as an individual in not as like a regular person like regular people out there consuming they've got like 200 followers 500 followers whatever they're just on there to check things out but like I'm on there or 
you're on there or Ritter Goods is on there. We're trying to we're trying to influence people. We're trying to do things. We're trying to sell a product. We're trying to sell an event. We're trying to sell a podcast or whatever it is. We're trying to get people involved. And the value of what you're doing is immediately judged by yourself, others, and people in the industry and corporations by a number of how many people like something, even though the number of people that like it is decided by the the algorithm <laughs> of whether they're whether it's it's not if it's actually good or not. It's right. the number is the value of you is decided by not a person. Yeah, a flawed not a person. Like not a per, like not a per, it is a computer that is basically yeah. deciding. And I hate it so much. I hate it so much. All the this the likes and the followers and the and and the things that people do to get more and. It just, it, the, the, the answer is not to care. I, I have to we care have to in what we're doing, what, what we're doing. We have yes, to care. I know. And I, the thing is though, is I think people feel the same way about it when they shouldn't like, we have to care, but you look at like a 16 year old girl or something like that who cares the same that we do. She doesn't have to care, but she does. And she's convinced to care by right. You're talking you know, because that's basically her her persona, or that's, right, right, right. That's individualistic. But, but the, why, what do we do? Like, where does society go from here? How do we? This is a big question. But how do we go from? Not that anybody has the answer. How do you go from this situation where me at twenty two thousand twenty two thousand nine hundred ninety nine followers that keeps floating back and forth between twenty three thousand and twenty two thousand nine hundred ninety nine, <laughs> going back and forth between that number? It not growing that makes Should I me, unfollow you right now? Should we go to two nine 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 eight? Not not growing social media makes yeah. you wonder if you're doing the right thing or not. And it, I don't know if it should or shouldn't. Maybe it is a good example of why whether you're doing the right thing or not. But in my head, I should just be like, "This is what I want to do." If you don't believe in what I'm doing, fuck you. But that's so hard. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem. At the end of the day, I'm sure someone's listening to this being like, well, then just quit. Uh, I'm 41 years old. What am I going to do? I mean, we've all chosen to take jobs that are in the public eye. And I think no different than, you know, 50s TV stars. We're having to worry about viewer count and stuff. Unfortunately, this is just something you have to kind of worry about you've got to make sure that you're appeasing whatever world it is you know and whatever algorithm is out there my hope is that we can come up with an algorithm that doesn't kind of amplify the negativity of human nature um mm. that doesn't reward kind of the lowest common denominator uh, i think if they can develop an algorithm that gets past that we won't be all falling for the, weird. It won't make money, the problem it can't make money no not only that i'm going to go back to your previous answer andrew how do you sure. decipher between quality content something that is authentic and men, has been put yeah. effort into versus just crap that's out there and, right. and the difficulty in answering that is why the algorithm sucks because right exactly. now the algorithm is nothing but if this you know, image receives attention, it is good. Right. The problem is we're all human and you're more likely to click, you know, some picture of some dude running naked down the street, even though you're not interested in it. There's just <laughs> something in our monkey brain that's like, oh, I got to see what this dude's doing. Yeah, right. Why is that thing flopping around? Like oh my God, fail look at videos. It, was... Oh, we should, should, we should the, turn Overcrest into the fail The algorithm video. Is, is far more complicated than people looked at this photo. I'm going to show it to more. The algorithm knows what's in the photo, who's in the photo, what colors are in the photo, what they're doing, where, when, and why. It knows all of those things. And then the problem is, is that what the negative stuff, because of human nature, this is exactly why we the 24-hour news cycle exists. Yeah. Is because the the negative as the negative aspects of human nature are, and I don't know, it's a lizard part of our brain or whatever it is, it makes us get glossy eyed and we look and we have to look. It's just like it's the it's, car crash. It's the car crash. It's, it's not firefighters. We could watch. There's people that in, in LA when they're chasing a car in the helicopter, it's the yeah. same thing, same outcome every time. Yeah. <laughs> but, everybody's but watching, watch. <laughs> but nobody's watching firefighters rescue cute kitties out of trees every day. You know, sure. it's, it's just, so the algorithm would have to make the, someone would have to tell the algorithm, look, 
it's they're going to have to make less money because it's going to be less engaging. It will 100% be less engaging if it's focusing on positive, constructive, authentic things. It will it will be less engaging for people. They'll never do it. It's We're doomed. I'm, I'm sorry. We are doomed. And I hear people, I've listened to people come on Lex Friedman's podcast and talk about this. There's almost no way to design an algorithm that is as good as what we have now and be good for people without losing the ability for it to make money. And if nobody's going to make money, then what are we even, then they're not going to even do it at all. Mm -hmm. That's just, that's just the way it is. So prepare to be doomed, I guess. Now, do you think that's true? Or do you think that there is, once we get the technology or the deep learning for the algorithm to be better, an opportunity to have, let's say, a social media or whatever it is that we're consuming at the time that is considered high quality, right? Because We've all seen the garbage magazines that sit in grocery stores and tell you, like, Bat Boy stole a car or something. Yeah. But then at the same time, you've got incredible magazines like Triple Zero for the Porsche fanatics that admittedly cost a good bit more than what you can buy in the grocery store. But because of that, they're not trying to sell 10 million, you know. Yeah, is but it's the circulation is, is so much different. The Bat Boy stuff is a dollar. Everyone's buying it. Right, exactly. But but triple zero is able to do it. And so is there a social media in the, of the future that doesn't, that is not filled with garbage that, yeah, it's only, let's say, 10 bucks a month, but we already all pay 10 bucks a month for Netflix or whatever. Would you just do it for social media that's not filled with garbage memes? I think I totally would. Mm -hmm. I probably would. I think I'm able to a little bit do that with Instagram by like hiding and controlling what I sure. see. So I can kind of do that a little bit. The problem is, is that every time someone tries to start a new social media, it sucks and it's never good. And it, nobody ever goes because everybody's on whatever we're on right, right. now, TikTok and, and Instagram and Facebook. Well, and TikTok's a good example. That was a new up and coming technology. Yeah. It's true. I mean, we all say this until the next social media exactly. comes along. All of a sudden, everyone's on it. Well, I, I hope that. All right, happens. let's do it. Let's let's do it, guys. <laughs> so I have a, I, I have well, a. That was easy. That was I, it was easy. We Just solved it. We, we solved, solved it. The human crisis has been solved. Um. Uh. So. <laughs> I just I totally railroaded Chris. That's that's okay. So Ritter Goods yeah, is something, I want to move on to what you're doing right now. Yes. So there went from Stance Works and he worked at 1552 for a while, and there was a period of time where I know that you were really struggling with what you wanted to do. You didn't know what to do or, or where to go. How did you decide to do Ritter Goods with all of the, the personal struggles that you had in the direction that you wanted to take your life? I didn't even, honestly, I started Ritter Goods, or at least the kind of 3D art that is Ritter Goods now. Um, I started independent of the idea of work which was a really novel thing for me. I think at StanceWorks, because we loved it so much, uh, work was life and life was work. Uh, we lived and breathed all of it. And I was kind of tired of everything being monetized and everything being quantified by numbers. And so uh, the 3D cartoon cars was sort of just a continuation of something that I had been working on since I was a kid. I mean, I, I drew cartoon cars. I have stickers that I drew following that trip to the fast and furious of a little cartoon supra with the crazy stickers down the side um and it was just always a, a a progression so i used to draw them in marker but that was never as clean as the cartoons that i would see in the magazines and so i learned about photoshop and sort of taught myself through photoshop for a bit and then that was still not as clean as i wanted so i moved into illustrator uh, and tried to learn there and then uh, fast forward, I think probably like eight or nine years. And I was sitting around at Stanceworks and we had just watched these great videos called tuned, um, that they did around the McLaren F1 team. And I was hooked. I was like, I've got to figure out how to do this. I've got to learn 3d. I've always wanted to, it felt like the next progression from all of the 2d drawings that I've always done. Uh, and so I, I went for it and I downloaded a program called blender, which is an incredibly open sourced, completely free program, uh, which, you know, lowers the barrier, barrier to entry almost entirely, uh, and just started teaching myself. And my first models were garbage at the moment, but 
I loved it. And it was just something I started doing on the side. I would do it when Mike was tinkering on cars. I would just sort of sit in my office and kind of futz around with it. And then I guess here we are a few years later and I'm, I'm trying to make it work and trying to have some fun and enjoy it. So how do you, like, when I look, I'm looking right now at the, a picture of a, I think that's a, a 962 group, group prototype car. And that's obviously drawn. Like it's drawn. Well, I mean, it might be, maybe you drew it on a, on a pad or, or an iPad, or you did a Wacom drawing of it, or maybe you drew it in pencil and then scanned it. And I'm not sure, but it's obviously got brush strokes, hand strokes that you've done. Sure. When you look at the 3d stuff, there's, there's really not too much of that. How have you kind of reconciled not being able to draw anymore as, as, as fulfilling? Is it as fulfilling for you? What's missing or is it filling some, I'm just trying to figure out how you uh, reconcile the leap. It's a tough one. And I don't know that I've kind of fully gotten there. Uh, you're right. The poster that you're looking at right now is entirely done in pen and ink on paper, old school status before being scanned in. Uh, and I really do. I love art that shows the hand of the artist. I don't like when things get too perfect. And so moving into 3D, that has been something that I've been reconciling. And I don't know that I've arrived exactly where I want to be yet, but that's sort of the fun of it. I try to reconcile it in things like the livery. The liveries on each car are still hand-drawn and imperfect rather than being an identical replica. Uh, and then I try to kind of make the materials of the surrounding world feel not entirely realistic and more kind of like straight out of the pages of a kid's picture book or something, because there is value in the nature of those things versus just trying to make something as photorealistic as possible. Yeah, I think that some of the struggles that I see or struggles that must exist, I when I see renders on on uh, Instagram, I follow some accounts that do renders, stuff like that. You can sure. always go, wow, that looks so good, but I can tell immediately that it's a render. And I think it's just the 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 per, the, the imperfections are lost. There's there's no rock chips, there's no dirt, there's no warbles in the paint, there's no orange peel, there's no wear and tear, and everything is just like as if the world was brand new and just came out of God's hand today, that's <laughs> right. what everything looks like. And it just never, it never feels like organic enough. Yeah. I mean, I think people underestimate just how imperfect the world is, you know, from little chips to wood grain to cracks in the concrete and stuff like that. I'm also just not, not that there's anything wrong with it, but I'm not one to want to mimic a real life scene. I never was when I, who was in painting classes either either i wasn't the person that sat and tried to nail a landscape that looked photorealistic it just wasn't where my head was at i think what i love about ritter goods is more in the world of being able to craft a world the way i would want it or the way i would i see the world um and so a lot of it's not realistic a lot of it is exaggerated and and crazy but there's something about having that ability to build a world, tell a story and kind of craft things to your own liking that I just, I absolutely love. One thing that you talked about there for a second uh, and even earlier was proportions. And sure. one thing that you, you really get right. And a lot of people really get wrong is proportions. And how much did you struggle or how much do you struggle with each car making sure that the proportions are right. Cause you can just, I can take a picture of something and I can grab the skew thing and I can go whoop. And I can like, I can make a, a car small. I can do it very oh, easily, yeah. like figure it out. But something about what you're doing looks right. I, I can't put my finger on it. I don't know exactly what it is. I don't know if there's some like golden ratio trickery going on, whatever <laughs> it is, everything looks proportioned just right. How? <laughs> Maybe if it's a secret, don't tell us. But like, how, 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 do you, what it, how do you do this? It's so good. I certainly appreciate it. I am glad that it kind of translates and you, you see it as well. I, proportions are just so important. I, I don't have the answer as much as just I can kind of hopefully feel it. Uh, and it's nice to hear that maybe I'm kind of close to the target. There's just something about it. And I think it's... I don't know. Like they, they talk about how the human brain perceives babies and the fact that babies have, I mean, the 
I guess the proportions of a baby are just wildly different than an actual like full grown human. Right. Their head is like a third of their body. Uh, and there's a lot of theory. That I'm over says here that, looking at Jake, kind of looking at his proportions right now, kind of sizing <laughs> him up a little bit. Exactly. Yeah, it's about it's, accurate. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but there's a lot of theory there that that is done to make sure that the child looks cute, not aggressive, so that the parents can feel super attached and protective of, of the child. And so I, sometimes I wonder if that's kind of the inherent truth behind cartoon characters as well because they very much follow in line with that of large heads kind of big goofy feet and stuff and so what i'm doing is not terribly different than what's being done there it just it requires a lot of work you know in the early early stages before i even get on a computer i'm sitting and sketching each car uh right now i've got my porsche 356 print on the wall in front of me and it's a, it's a fascinating car, but once you start squashing it, the original lines don't work anymore. It doesn't look right. Um, and so it's all about tweaking and pulling different parts of it to make sure that you kind of still nail that same feeling or try to evoke whatever feeling it is that you associate with that car. I'm assuming each car that you do has defining characteristics that you can change a lot of other things, but you can't change fill in the blank and that fill in the blank thing is kind of what gives the car its identity and you can kind of spoof and fudge other things around but as long as that's there you're okay oh absolutely i think each car has its thing or two or three things and a lot of times what i'll do is if i notice there's this untouchable thing that you can't mess with too much you can accentuate that i think of i did the bmw csl and those things have these huge you know shark noses of a hood and a kind of crazy angle to the front air dam. And so what I did was I just accentuated it even more. Um, I think you start playing to that and you really can start digging down into what makes a CSL look so CSL-ish. Yeah, I'm looking at this right now. And if people aren't aware of what Ritter Goods is, you should look at it in Instagram. And what I think is interesting, it's so unique what you're doing. You describe it on the website as just being a whimsical world inhabited by cute cars and interesting characters. But... What's so cool about it is these are instantly recognizable real cars. Like, I know this is the Longhood 911. This is the 935 Apple car. You know, this is a Formula One car. So it's that balance, I think, of making something like you describe it as whimsical and cute, but also, I would still say, like, realistic and hyper-realistic in some ways. And I, I, it's that balance that you find is, I think, what makes this so good. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, the details just come from... I get... I get addicted when I start working on these cars and they're kind of in many ways, just like those plastic models you used to build as a kid. And so, you know, I'll find myself staying up late at night, working on the bolts that <laughs> hold the rotor to the, you know, the calipers and stuff, knowing that no one's going to see that or appreciate it, but I get addicted to it as a project as building this car. Cause in my head, you know, maybe my garage can only fit the mini that doesn't run, but I'm building all of these cars to kind of be in my collection. Yeah, yeah especially the, especially that Alpha. Yeah, it was, was literally say, a build. Yeah, that in was the virtual awesome. world. I I still I I always w would love to see this stuff as something I could own in a virtual world. And it is have you given any thought to like video games or NFT? No, <laughs> no, I don't want to get into it, <laughs> but, but just like video games and like ownership of the car and, you know, even in, uh, in, you know, Forza, you can buy and sell skins or any, just like, it would be great to be able to have all these parts and be able to pull them off and put them on and, and do things or, or even like a, a model in the real world where I could have, you know, certain little parts that I could, you know, maybe there'd be a parts kit that I could buy and it would just be so fun to be able to modify these things. And in, in a way that I think they do this with, uh, like I know with the Volkswagen vans, you can buy a kit that has different wheels that you can put on. You're talking it like, like a model. Yeah. Like little oh. models. Yeah. I mean, that would be a blast. I, before I got a car, I was into RC cars almost exclusively because you could mo modify them and buy little parts for them. I think it is a dream of mine to, I guess just see more come from these 3D models that I'm working on, whether it be, you know, a video game or something. Um, and just on the down low, I'm working on making them come to uh, fruition in a physical world in 143rd scale. So we'll kind of see that 
come to life Ooh. hopefully fingers crossed this fall so i'm excited i'm i'm really really excited for that that's that's gonna be a, a good time i do these cars and what you're doing <laughs> what, hey, what's the guy what's the guy's name that you have in the in in the world and where did he come from uh so that's milton and in this world i'm crafting he is this historian teacher character kind of that old man that I feel like so many of us have in our lives, whether it's a mentor or your dad, literally, or your grandfather, um, you know, that old guy that lives in like a shop has like the amazing collection of tools and parts and stuff. In my world, he is the caretaker of all these cars. And he is the kind of the historian that has a full archive of photographic moments from the history of these cars. And so that's where the art prints come in. Uh, the story is, is that they're being pulled from Milton's collection uh, uh, in this little studio of his. So can we look forward to, to hearing more from Milton? Like, can we have like a, like a Milton teach us about something? Is that, Ooh, yeah, that would be great. Absolutely. That is, that is how he came to life is that he is hopefully going to be the sort of narrator uh, that, teaches and and walks people through things because a large part of Ritter Goods for me is being able to pass along this love for cars and this love for the history of cars to future generations or even just fellow enthusiasts. I want to use it to, you know, tell people about these old Porsches or BMWs or what have you and tell about some of the incredible drivers. And so Milton is going to be there uh, with a microphone to kind of walk us all through it and take us through the world of Ritter goods. You know, there's a, there's this software, you know, you can do streaming, right? You stream while you play video games and there's a little picture of you and you sit there and you can talk or whatever, but yep. there's this plugin that you can use that turns you into an avatar and it like your, your motions move and everything happens as you're talking. And it's, <laughs> it would be great if you could be Milton embodied, Milton, embodied Milton and talk like you could do an interview. Sorry. I'm just throwing all kinds of weird things out there. It'd be cool. Like you could be in this digital world live as Milton and people could be asking you questions about the 356 Ooh, or like the 935 cent. You could be, it, it, I just think that there's so many possibilities. I, I, I really, 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 really love what you're doing. And I just see so much potential with it because you're, you're so talented and it goes way beyond the proportions because that's great. But the world that you're creating and the models you've done, and I've seen stuff behind the scenes. I'm really I'm just super excited for you, man. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate the support. Uh, you've got some art prints on the way. All right. I, wow. I just, I appreciate all the kind words. Well, I look forward to seeing some, seeing those show up in the mail, and I look forward to seeing everything that you're doing. Thanks a ton for coming on the podcast, man. Where can people find out more about Ritter Goods? Uh, the best place to find news is uh, at Ritter.Goods on Instagram or check out the website, RitterGoods.com. There's a newsletter on there if you want to stay up to date. We've got some art prints launching next week that should be really fun. And I just, in, in closing, I think we're going to have a little something from Ritter Goods to uh, give away on the rally. I, I believe that we're going to be giving away to some very select few. I'm excited for that. Yeah, would be great. All right, man. Thanks so much for coming and hanging out with us. I, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you very much. Thanks so much for having me in chat. And it was good, good hanging out. All right. Take, take care. care. Bye, guys. Andrew Ritter, ladies and gentlemen, one of the, if not one of the most talented person I know. You know, he is. It's, yeah. What he produces is very cool. The Ritter good th Goods thing is awesome, of course. But if you just look at the breadth of all the things that he's done yeah. with Stance, Stance works, works, the shirts, the logos, the arts, the everything. It's The it's, arts? The arts. There's multiples. <laughs> There's multiples. The arts. When, when people say the <laughs> When people say I, the arts, what do they actually mean? What is uh, it? They're talking about like, oh, music and like, you know, well, he doesn't theater. Do, doesn't do I know, but that's why I, I laughed because you were using the term the arts as in like his multiple art pieces. Yes. The arts. The arts. But yes. I was just like. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Yes. Yeah, he's, Very he's, talented dude. I know he's got some, either he has some prints for sale or they're about to be for sale by the time this podcast comes out. And my guess is that he doesn't need us to sell any prints for him. I'm going to guess they're going to sell out immediately. Yeah, I went to his website and it said, uh, sorry, first batch of art prints sold out on launch day. Yeah, they so, sell out pretty much instantly. Yeah. So it's, in any way, support Andrew Ritter Good, at Ritter Goods. Yep. You'll find it because we follow him. And if you follow us, it'll 
you know, auto algorithm you into being friends with him and stuff like that. So make sure that you do that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's always great to support artists and, and what they do. What have we got going on next week? You ask who asks you No, you just said who, what do we have going on next week? You ask, you ask as in like like the collective is asking who they are. What's going on next week? Are you asking me? I don't know. Yes. Well, no, you don't. Well, I no, you don't don't know. You don't know. So have you ever played a game or you don't because you have no idea, but there's a game out there called the art of rally. Okay. It's awesome. It's like a cell shaded, really simple game with really simple like versions of cars that they're like they're like the the one nine one instead of a nine eleven, but it looks just like a nine oh, eleven. Right, 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 right. But so nothing's licensed. But it is this fantastic game that has all this amazing cell shading, and it's really a it's a simple game, but it's really fun. Okay, and we're gonna have the 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 designer of that game. Oh, awesome! On the podcast, and they have like a drift game that's kind of really similar. But it's on a uh, Xbox um, Game Pass. Okay. I believe. So if you want to try it out before we have them on, you're, you're, you should you should go check it out and download uh, The Art of Rally for Xbox, PlayStation, PC, whatever whatever you play. Try it out. It's super fun. I know I Jeff, don't have any of those things. Uh, you could probably play it on your Mac. It's very, very... Oh, it's, okay. It's, it's a chill game. You could probably play it. Otherwise, you could... Pr- you promised me you would come help me out with my car and you haven't uh, have not done that yet. Yeah. So maybe you could come up and deliver my refrigerator. I and, was thinking about that too. <laughs> and, and play the game. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Anyway, Art of Rally, check it out. Rare Goods, check them out as well. We will see you guys next week. Take care.